Uh, So we're going to be picking up in Ephesians 1, and we're going to be reading verses 15 through 23 through the uh, end of the chapter there. Um, And these are the words of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. These are the words of God. Father, we uh, come before you and uh, we are thankful Lord, that you uh, have uh, given us your word. And Lord, we are thankful uh, that you don't leave us to wonder, uh, Lord, what you are like and how you feel toward us. But not only have you revealed that in your scriptures, but you have revealed that in the person and work of your son, Jesus. And what you have revealed is that you love us, your people, that you desire that we be with you where you are. And so, Lord, as we uh, study this passage, I pray, God, that you would be uh, speaking to our hearts. God, I pray that you would convict us of our sins, the areas that uh, are presented in this passage where we know maybe that we fall short. And Father, I pray, Lord, if, if there's someone in this room who needs to hear a word of encouragement, Father, I pray that this passage would be used by your spirit to, to bind up the brokenhearted. But Lord, we above all else ask that you would have your will in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you guys may know this. Some of you may not know this. I don't enjoy going to the doctor. Uh, Amen. Yeah. <laughs> the doctor to me is kind of like the mailman in the sense that the, he only brings two things, bills and bad news. Okay. Uh, that's the, that's kind of, that's how I, I'm going to tell you how I really feel about, about the mail and doctors. <laughs> um, and so I say that somewhat jokingly, but not really. Um, but Obviously, if there was something seriously wrong, right, then I would want to go to the doctor, right? Because the doctor would be able to run tests and would be able to reveal the, the, the true condition, 
right, of what's going on in my body or, you know, um, or my mind or whatever it is, uh, the doctor would be able to, to reveal the, the truth about my condition and then would be able to help me create a plan to restore my health, right? But the, the pathway to get to that point begins with discovering the truth, right? The truth about my, you know, in this hypothetical instance, the truth about my illness, right? And similarly, in tonight's passage, uh, the Apostle Paul is praying for the Ephesians, and he prays that, that the Holy Spirit would reveal three specific truths to these people. And these truths are used by the Holy Spirit to encourage, to restore, to um, to uh, give these Ephesians the desire to follow hard after Jesus, right? But to give you guys a little bit of uh, context, so this passage comes right after my, probably my favorite passage in the Bible, uh, the one that we just talked about last week. That is probably my absolute favorite, and uh, I am kind of bummed that we only took one week on it. Maybe someday we'll do lots of weeks on it. I don't know. Um, but uh, so this passage comes right on the heels of that. Um, and this passage bears the information of verses 3 through 14 in mind and is almost like the, the prayer flows out of uh, the amazing truths that are uh, just all stuffed right in there in verses 3 through 14. Um, and so as we're, we're talking about the, the fact that, the, that Paul is praying for the Holy Spirit to reveal these truths, um, the question that, that should be on our minds is, what are these truths that the Holy Spirit reveals, or that Paul is praying for the Holy Spirit to reveal to these Christians? What are they, and, and how do they affect our lives? How do we apply them in our own lives? So the three truths that, that Paul prays for the Holy Spirit to reveal in the lives of the Ephesians are as follows. First, he prays that the Holy Spirit would reveal the hope of God's calling. The hope of God's calling. Second, he prays that the Holy Spirit would reveal the riches of God's inheritance. The riches of God's inheritance. And third, he prays that the Holy Spirit would reveal the great power of God. So the hope of God's calling, the riches of God's inheritance, and the great power of God. Let's, let's kind of dig in here. Let's talk about that first one. Look with me at verses uh, 17 and 18, where he says, uh, so in verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 17, that, which is a purpose statement, so that, right, uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, here once again, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that, another purpose statement, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And so the first, the first truth that Paul wants... Oh, look at that. They're all bold on the screen. Cool. I forgot that I did that. Um, so first thing, he, uh, he says, the hope uh, to which he has called you. And so this, once again, it, this, this fact uh, that 
even just the, the language there where it says uh, it's, it's God's calling on their lives, right? And so once again, emphasizing God's work, right? Which we talked about this last week of having been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit, right? And so once again, continuing with this theme of like our salvation is completely of God. It is God's calling, right? He has called you. But we are asking ourselves, what is the, because Paul prays that they would understand the hope. So what is the hope? Well, I think we get a little glimpse of it if we back up to verse 10. Sorry if verse 10 is not in your, uh, your pamphlet. You'll have to get a, get a paper Bible or a digital Bible. Um, but if you back up to verse, uh, verse 10, it says, it says this, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I think that is a little bit of a, of a glimpse of what this hope is. You see, in that section there, uh, Paul, just uh, right around verses 8, 9, 10, uh, he's talking about the fact that God has had this plan to, to bring forth Christ uh, from before the foundation of the world, and he's had this plan to bring forth Jesus to, uh, to uh, basically restore all things, right? That's kind of the, the theme of this, um, of this book and of this uh, sermon series. Um, but what's really interesting is why would, why would uh, restoration be necessary? Restoration would only be necessary if something's broken, Right? And so what this, this verse conveys, right, is that uh, the entrance of sin into the world uh, created this, this departure from God's original design, okay? It, sin separated God from humanity, right? Because a holy God cannot live in, and dwell with unholiness without completely obliterating it. Okay, and so sin brings this separation uh, between uh, God and humanity. Okay, and so God, uh, knowing all of this beforehand, had a plan even before creation began to send Jesus to repair what was broken, namely uh, God and his relationship to humanity and even to uh, create, even God's relationship to creation to some extent because if you look at the world, the world does not function the way that God originally designed it to function. Sin has broken everything. And so what Paul is doing is he's, he's pointing them to this hope that they have as Christians, and he's setting this hope in front of them, right? Or he's praying that the Holy Spirit, rather, will set this hope in front of them. It's kind of funny. Uh, when I, usually towards finals, uh, when I'm, you know, working on different classes and stuff, Lindsay will put a, a hope in front of me, some sort of uh, like a, a treat that I get after I finish, like a really big paper or, because uh, it's hard to stay motivated. Amen? Like finals week, it's hard to stay motivated to write those big papers, to do those finals. And so Lindsay oftentimes <laughs> will be like, if you do, if you, you know, finish it this day, I'll make you this really good dessert or I'll make you this really good dinner. And, I'm, and she puts that hope in front of me as I'm working towards this, uh, this, this goal, right? 
And in a similar way, what Paul is praying for in the lives of of these, these Christians is he's praying that the Holy Spirit would put that hope in front of these people, namely the hope that uh, everything that is broken in this world, even the, the separation that they feel from God because of their own sinfulness, uh, all of that, this hope completely uh, removes the unhopeful situation that we all live in. Imagine, uh, I want you guys to imagine, imagine a beautiful rug, right? Okay, it's like, and on the rug, if you, if you could imagine that you have this, this uh, picture of God and then this picture of humanity on the other side. And what sin has done is that it, is, it has torn the rug in half so that there is this distance, this separation, this brokenness that hangs in the middle between God and, and humanity and what Jesus has done through the cross and through his, his uh, sinless life and his, and his substitutionary death and through his resurrection is he has come with needle and thread and he has threaded that rug, that tapestry back together and has brought God's people back to him. And what's, what's amazing about, about this, uh, this, re, this reuniting that Jesus accomplishes is that it's not just like that Jesus brings us back to status quo, but Jesus, his redemption accomplishes uh, such a, a wonderful restoration that uh, ultimately when we are in the presence of God, sin will not even be a possibility anymore because sin, sorrow, death, and sickness are all removed. Actually, I'll, I'll read you guys a verse, probably one of my favorite verses. Uh, it's Revelation, Revelation 21, uh, verse 3. And it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And that's the hope that Paul is praying that these Christians will have in front of them because they recognize that the gospel changes everything, that it gives us an unshakable hope. And so that's what Paul is praying for, that, that, that these Ephesians, that they'll understand what really, really good news the gospel is. And so my question for us is, as we're thinking about this, this hope, as you go throughout your days, as you are facing tough situations, do you remind yourself of the hope that you have in Christ? Do you go to the word and do you read passages like Revelation 21, you know, uh, just, well, the whole chapter is great, but, you know, verses three and four specifically, right, where it, it talks about this hope that we have in front of us, right, that, that it, God has, has written down beforehand so that we can read it as his children and be encouraged. Do you think about the hope that you have in Christ <coughs> or do you find yourself easily discouraged when tough situations arise. I'm usually the second person. 
I get, I get really discouraged when tough things happen. And that's because I'm not remembering the hope that I have. And that's what Paul prays for. He prays that these people would remember this, this hope of God's calling on their lives. That one day, everything that is broken will be made right. And we will live forever in the presence of the triune God. So that's the first thing, right? The, that that uh, they would remember the hope, that they would know the hope of their calling. The second thing that he prays is that they would know and under that they would know the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. So, in addition to revealing the hope of God's calling, Paul also prays for these Ephesian Christians and prays that the Holy Spirit would reveal to them the riches of God's inheritance. Now, the past few Sundays, uh, Pastor Carl has been saying something because we've been going through Daniel. And so if you guys have been, you know, those of you who are in, you know, in service, you've been hearing him say a phrase, uh, the scholars are divided on this, okay? This phrase here, uh, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, you can stick this phrase in that category, okay? They are all over the map on what this means. I read four different commentaries, got four different opinions on it. I was like, you, y'all need to get your story straight, but uh, here's, here's what I think. Uh, there's, a, there's a rule that the, that the reformers laid down for interpreting uh, passages. You let scripture interpret scripture, okay? So if you look at verse 11, uh, it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. That's the first line of verse 11. That's actually not a great translation in my opinion. Um, John Calvin, when he uh, did the translation of the, of, um, the New Testament, the, when he did uh, this, this book in the Geneva Bible, he actually translated it something more like this, where he said, in him we have been obtained as an inheritance, which fits much more with the context of being chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit, and being obtained by God as his inheritance. That fits much more uh, good. That's probably not the best way to say it. Much more better uh, in this context, right? Uh, And so when you drop down to verse 18, right, you're letting what, and this is also just a, a for free thing. When you are interpreting scripture, you always interpret from beginning to end, okay? You don't let something back here color your interpretation of this over here. That's called reading a text backwards. That's a no-no. So we, so we read the text the way that it's written, right? So verse 11 should inform our understanding of verse 18, right? So verse 18, when he says, uh, when he says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? I think what he is saying is that you are the riches of his inheritance. I think what Paul is saying to, uh, in this letter, and what he is praying for the Ephesians to understand is that they are God's precious possession, that they are God's inheritance. And not only does that seem consistent with the context, but if you look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 9, It's consistent with how God speaks of his people. 
This is what Deuteronomy 32 verse 9 says. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. So we we can see that God has this pattern throughout scripture of talking about his people as his precious possession, as his uh, portion. I think about, uh, to give you guys an illustration from my own life, um, when I uh, when I was 16, I really really wanted a truck, and uh, but you know I always got these dorky cars for like 10 years, right? I got I got this Grand Prix that no joke caught on fire while I was driving it, um, <laughs> uh, and then after that disaster, right? I got this dorky Hyundai thing that I was driving when Lindsay met me, um, but I mean it got good gas mileage, but it was you know, it was lame, um, and so. <laughs> For like 10 years, I was driving these cars that were, you know, not cool, right? And then finally, uh, I think actually when you and I were dating, right, is when I got the truck? Oh, maybe we were engaged. I can't remember. Um, But so I got this truck, and it was the one that I had when I moved down here, right? When I first got that thing, that thing was my precious possession, okay? Like, I took really good care of it. That's not how it was towards the end. Uh, But when I first got it, I definitely took really good care of it, washed it all the time. Uh, Probably didn't vacuum it out because, yeah, anyway. Um, But it was was my, this, this thing that I really, really... Uh, I really loved, right? It was this, I, you know, I spent my own money on it. It was, it was precious <coughs> to me, right? And in a similar way, the people of God are his precious possession. We talked about last week how if you're in Christ, you are handpicked by the Father. If you are in Christ, Jesus purchased you with his own blood, And if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit sought you, changed your heart at the moment that you believed the gospel, and brought you into the family of God. God is very intentional about seeking you out because he loves you and because you are precious to him. And that is a truth that the first century Christians needed to hear. And that's a truth that us as 21st century Christians need to hear. Now, when I say that, there's going to be two unbiblical responses to that truth that I I just shared with you from this passage. The first unbiblical response is this. Well, of course God feels that way about me. I'm awesome, right? That's That's the first response, okay? Not good, okay? Second bad response is this. I don't think God calls me his precious possession. I don't think God calls me his inheritance. But he might say that about Joel, right? Or he might say that about Luke or about McKenna, right? But I don't think that he would say that about me. And the truth is, is that both of those responses are wrong. And the ironic thing is that the root of the, both of those responses is pride. It's pride. When you uh, are abnormally focused on yourself, right, in either a, a way where you think too highly of yourself, guess what? That's pride. And if you are abnormally focused on yourself where you think too lowly of yourself, that is also pride. 
It's this, this self-oriented pattern of thinking. I like how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, uh, humility is not thinking more of yourself than you ought, and it's not thinking less of yourself than you ought to. It's just thinking of yourself less. That is humility. And that is the, the type of response that we should have to the truth when God comes to you and he says, you are my precious possession. We should never say, oh, of course, because that reveals that we don't understand how wicked we really are, how sinful we are, and that we deserve absolutely nothing but hell. But when you understand that that is the only thing you deserve, and God comes to you through his word, and he says, you are my precious possession, you are my inheritance, you are overwhelmed with joy, overwhelmed with the reality that God sees you that way. So my question for us is, do you see yourself that way? Do you believe this about yourself? Not because you see yourself as worthy of this, but because God says it. So there's first two things. The second, excuse me, the third is this. So we've talked about how we, uh, Paul prays for the Ephesians to, to uh, know the hope of God's calling, that they would know that they, I would say, that they are the riches of his inheritance. But the third thing that he prays for is that they would know the great power of God. Look at verse 19 where he says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, who believe according to the working of his great might. And so that kind of puts us right in the middle of the sentence there, but he says, you know, basically the same, same uh, front half of it would, would apply. You know, having the eyes of your heart uh, enlightened so that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And so the third thing that Paul prays that they would understand is that God is powerfully at work in their lives. And then in verses 20 through 23, Paul gives these extended, uh, really, uh, illustrations of the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Look at that, where he says uh, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power, dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he's put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so Paul, what he's doing there is he's, he's giving all of these illustrations of the greatness of God's power, and he's praying that these Ephesians would recognize that the God who can do all of those things is the same God who is at work in their lives. John Calvin, when he, uh, when he read this uh, section of scripture, um, he noted that uh, there's actually these kind of these um, like two, two descriptions of God's power. It says the immeasurable greatness of his power and then the working of his great might. Right, and so apparently, at at some point during um, 
during conversations with other people, they basically said that that, that was like unnecessary, right? For, for Paul to say like, uh, you know, the immeasurable greatness of his power and the, his, the working of his great might. And so Calvin said this, he said, foolish men imagine that this language is unnecessary, but godly persons who are engaged in daily struggles with inward corruption have no difficulty in perceiving that not a word here used is, uh, that not a word is here used beyond what is perfectly just. And so what he's saying here is he's saying that the amount of description that Paul uses in this thing is absolutely perfect because it encourages us that this God who is mighty, who is powerful, is the God who is at work in our lives to help us deal with the sin that indwells our hearts. I remember when I first started learning guitar, I actually quit for a year because I was so terrible, right? And what I really wanted more than anything was to be like in the matrix where they just like download all of the information to you and you could just like instantly play like you're the best, right? Like, if I, if I had known that that was available to me, like, maybe I wouldn't, maybe I wouldn't have quit for a year, right? Maybe I would, have, I would have just, you know, tapped into that power or whatever. Um, it's a stupid illustration. But anyway, the, the, the point is this. Um, we need, as Christians, as people who are seeking to follow Jesus, we need to know that we're not by ourselves, Right? We need to know that we're not left to our own meager resources to try and live a life that, that honors Jesus and to try and love Jesus the way that he deserves to be loved. Because um, if we are on our own, then there is absolutely no hope for us to live the Christian life. Absolutely no hope. But that is not the case. We, who are children of God, have the triune God powerfully at work in our minds and hearts to help us fight against our sin nature and to help us love others and to love him the way that he deserves to be loved. So my question for us is, as we're thinking about this fact that God is powerfully at work in our lives, there's two questions. Do you recognize your need for God to powerfully work in your life? Or are you trying to uh, live the Christian life on your own, in your own strength? Do you recognize your need? And if you do recognize your need, are you asking God to help you? Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, that power that is able to accomplish all of those things is the power that is at work and available to you and I as God's children to help us live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And so just as it is important if you are sick, it's important for you to go to the doctor and learn the truth about your condition, right? In the same way, we as, <laughs> uh, 
We're on the same wavelength. Uh, We as Christians need to hear these truths. We need to hear that our identity is that we are God's precious possession. We need to hear that our calling, that God has called us and brought us into his family, and that calling is a calling of hope. We need to hear that God is powerfully at work in our lives, that he has not left you alone to live out the Christian life. But none of those things would be true of us if Christ had not come. For it is in Christ that we receive the hope of God's calling. It is in Christ that we receive that hope. And it is in Christ that we receive the identity of God's precious possession. And it is in Christ that we receive the power to live for God's glory. Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ, talks about how no benefit of Christ can be separate <clears throat> from him. Every benefit that is offered, the, the, the blessing of having a hope like this, the, the joy of, being, uh, of having the identity of being God's precious possession, knowing that God is powerfully at work in us, those blessings do not exist outside of being in Christ. They are ours in him, being united to him by faith, or they are not ours at all. It is in him or not at all. So with that said, let's pray and we will uh, jump into our small groups.